we're going to be talking about God's unassailable goodness. And I arrived at this because I need it with everything that is going on right now. I need to be reminded of God's absolute goodness. So I want to start off and be a little bit introspective here at the beginning. Um, How would you describe God? What sorts of things come to mind? And just do a little bit of an assessment and just kind of think mentally what comes to mind when we think about God. Now, this is not an, an exercise in relativism. Everybody's got their own thoughts and things, and so there's going to be a little bit of difference, but I would suspect in this room we're going to have, in this room, in this broader room that includes our Zoom folks, I suspect that we would have some very similar responses. You know, we might go into the Trinitarian language and talk of a Godhead that's three persons in one, living eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We might talk about God's actions or God's attributes, the things that He has done, the things that have brought about our redemption through Christ. He's the Creator. He's sovereign. He's holy. He is just. We might launch into some of the theological superlatives that people like to use. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And all of these are very good answers and all of them can be supported from Scripture. I would say, though, that God's goodness in, in amongst all of those attributes is a key attribute in that it is one that we and the world at large can sometimes find ourselves doubting. There's, uh, you can doubt any of those attributes, really, and people do. But God's goodness in particular is one that we, at least for me, have to cultivate an acceptance of. Because if we don't cultivate an acceptance of God's goodness and an acknowledgement of God's goodness, we can find ourselves questioning it. Um, In Jeremiah, speaking of the new covenant, the prophet says, I will put my law within them and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each of them teach his neighbor and brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. And we should all have acknowledgement, an acknowledgement of God's goodness, and we should all know God intimately if we are an acceptor and a part of this new covenant, God should be indwelling within us with our Holy Spirit. And we should know intimately God's goodness and trust God's goodness. But we find ourselves doubting. So what about God's goodness? That What is it about this attribute of God that causes us to sometimes 
have a, a lingering uh, a lingering doubt. It is the storms and all of the hardships that we go through in our lives. And if we allow ourselves to be battered by some of these things, we will find that it will affect our ability to view God for who He is, for the loving and merciful God that He is. And this is why I need to hear about God's goodness right now. Because there are so many people that are isolated right now. There are so many people that are sick right now. There are so many people that are scared of being sick right now. There are so many people that are arguing right now about what to do and where to go and viewing things through the MSNBC lens versus the Fox TV lens. And it is enough if we allow ourselves as the church to get distracted by the things that are going on we not only begin to question God's goodness for ourselves, it allows and increases the propensity for those outside the church to question God's goodness as well. If we can't even reflect the kind of peace and the kind of calm and the kind of love that God calls us to. I hesitated to think to use this as an example, but I I think that we could probably do it. Um, I think about Nathan Springer right now, and, and I would encourage all of us to be praying for Emily and praying for Nathan. Having lost a father at a really young age to cancer and having a pregnant wife going through cancer, he is being tested in a way that few of us can even imagine. And we can can take situations like that and we can let them defeat us and we can begin to blame God and doubt the goodness that He has for us. But we just can't. We have to recognize where these things ultimately come from. They come from the fact that we have a broken and corrupted world and they come from the fact that we have an adversary and that's the reason why if you looked at my uh, my subtitle it says the devil and the psalmist because we're going to talk about the devil and related to God's goodness you can't talk about God's goodness without talking about the adversary so With everything that we have, the problem is that we can say all day long as a type of mental ascent, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. 
but we have to cultivate a deeply grounded knowing through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. It is in having that mental assent, that mental knowledge of, of saying everything's okay, of course God's good, everything's fine, God will get us through this, having that disconnect, that chink in the armor of having a, 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 a mental assent to God's goodness, but not a deep-seated gut knowledge and intimate knowledge of God's goodness, that means that we have a little bit of a disconnect that gives Satan that avenue for attack. Because Satan would love nothing more than to take some head Christian who's in his head all the time, in her head all the time, saying, God is good, I know God is good, and then driving a wedge with some sort of tragedy or some sort of um, hardship. You know, we get the word Satan as a direct loan word from the Hebrew. It is uh, phonetic, Satan, and it means the accuser or the adversary. And uh, while he is an adversary, for the rest of this lesson, I think we need to focus on the accuser aspect of it. Because what we're going to find is, in bringing about hardships, Satan will use that to both accuse God and to accuse us. For God, um, he's going to point to God and question God's goodness whenever all of these storms of life and all these trials come and things seem like they're falling apart. Satan's going to be there whispering in your ear saying, God's not good. He doesn't really love you. How could he allow this to happen? When it comes to trials and, and things that come into our, our lives, you know, it's going to be the same kind of thing. He's the accuser. He's going to say, you know, you really screwed up there. How can... How can you ever expect those people to forgive you? How can you ever expect God to forgive you? So, the accuser aspect of this is really going to be a major avenue of of Satan's attack in our lives. And right now, we're in a season of that. Where right now, there's enough going on in all of our lives that it would be very easy for us to allow ourselves to be defeated and downcast. We see at the very beginning a good example of how this dynamic works with Satan acting as the accuser and impugning God's goodness. In Genesis 3, the serpent speaking to Eve and her husband there with him, with her, um, But the serpent said unto the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, while it's not a direct questioning of God, he doesn't say the words. In the subtext, it's very clear that 
this is impugning God's goodness. You will not surely die. God is deceiving you. Projection much? Um, He's deceiving Eve right here by saying God is deceiving you. God is holding out on you. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God and He doesn't really want you to be like Him. He wants to keep you down. He's holding out on you. Both of those, right down to the core, are impugning God's goodness. But the big daddy of biblical examples of Satan impugning God's goodness is from Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From growing to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land, but you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his, your face. So we have a challenge, a direct challenge to God from Satan. And this is more directly saying that, that uh, God is not good. Does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? In Job, the accuser's challenge is to say that God is using this Machiavellian sham to manipulate Job toward his desired end. Satan is laying down the charge. You don't really care about Job. You're, You're giving him all this stuff to distract him and you're giving him protection and you're just doing this so that he will will then rise up and praise you. You pull that away and see what he does. And of course we know the story. That's exactly what happens. Um, God lifts the protection and Satan has the opportunity to bring these calamities into Job's life. So, Satan, between Genesis 3 and the book of Job, has refined his attack. And I would submit to you that this attack that he levies at Job is much more akin to the type of attack that we would receive today. First, he's challenging God's goodness behind the scenes. He's not coming directly to Job and whispering in his ear and saying, you know, God's not good. He's challenging God behind the scenes 
thumbing his nose and saying, all right, well, let's see what happens if we throw this at him. So while we as the outside reading the book of Job get to know what's going on behind the scenes between God and Satan and get to know what type of of a challenge Satan has laid down and get to know why God has to defend his character in this situation. Job never had the benefit of knowing what was going on behind the scenes. It was all veiled to him. And then, of course, Satan affects him and brings about all of the pain and all of the loss that we read about in Job. It's the kind of thing that would make really anybody question God. And Job is the, the example that he is precisely because he handles it much better than any of us would. And lastly, Satan supplies friends. Oh boy, do we have a lot of opinions that we have to sort through and sift through whenever we're going through something. A lot of opinions. And some of them are going to be wise counsel that are going to be good for us to heed and good for us to reflect on our actions and our contribution to the situation. And some of them are going to be like Job's friends. Some of us are going to hear things like what Job, Job's friends were saying, which was a proxy attack on Job from Satan. Satan doesn't come and talk to Job directly. He doesn't have to. He's got three guys there that are more than willing to tell Job, this is all your fault, buddy. This is all your fault. When has God ever allowed something bad to happen to someone who's righteous? Is one of their questions. Well, all the time, really, because we live in a broken world, really. So it's a mistruth to say that you're righteous and nothing bad is going to happen because it will. And we need to be grounded in God's goodness when it does. So, I'm going to, outside of Jesus himself, because Jesus is part and parcel with the Father. He's part of the Godhead. He's existed with God and knows God more intimately than anybody. But outside of Jesus, I'm going to point to the person who is probably the most grounded of, of anybody in the Scriptures in terms of their acknowledgement of God's goodness. A man after God's own heart. This, of course, would be David. And uh, when we were uh, looking at that account in the Old Testament, of course, Saul had some problems and had some disobedience and, and was not trusting God in the way that he should. 
And Samuel comes and tells him that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. You know, there can be a lot of speculation about what that means. A man after his own heart. There are there have been lots of theories put forward, but I think at a minimum what has to be included in that is the fact that David was deeply convinced of God's goodness in a way that few of us can ever even imagine. If we look at David's life in total, you know, we had uh, during the meeting, David and Goliath was t- the the. There was a sermon on David and Goliath during our meeting, and here we have this young man at a very young age saying, "God is going to deliver me from you because you are blaspheming the name of the living God." To a challenger that all of his countrymen were afraid to stand up to. But even deeper than that, in the Psalms, we get to see in all of David's Psalms a glimpse of his internal life and his internal relationship with God. And we get to glean from that what it means to be truly grounded and truly convinced and truly connected to God's goodness. So I want you to kind of really meditate on these words as we go through a couple of these psalms because it really is a, uh, a reflection of how David viewed God and how God's goodness just keeps coming to light in David's life. And David is able to maintain that that view and that confidence in God's goodness. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. One thing I have asked of the Lord and one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord and acquire in his, inquire in his temple. And then Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. His iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, and he has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountain of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you have given them drink from the river of your delights. For you are a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love for those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. For the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to rise. When we get this glimpse into the heart of David that is so after the heart of God, pursuing the heart of God, we get to see that a solution to our self-doubt, the self-doubt that can sometimes overtake us if we let it, is worship. David, as a shepherd... And as a king, someone who was at the bottom of the pecking order of his brothers in an occupation that was viewed as shifty and lowbrow to being the king of Israel, David was a worshiper in all seasons of his life. We have to be worshipers in all seasons of our lives and in all circumstances of our lives. We have the opportunity to go before the living God, the God of creation, of the universe, and we have the opportunity in that moment to take ourselves out of the picture and to take our troubles out of the picture, to take all of the turmoil around us out of the picture, to lay it down at God's feet. To lay it down. And to allow God, as we give our praise to Him, to allow God to instill in us a confidence in His goodness. You know, David, as amazing as an example he is, he only knew in part What a beautiful picture of God we have. Far and above what David ever could have known. Although, I'm sure he had some idea. We have a picture 
of a God who left heaven, traveled the farthest possible distance in a metaphysical sense, to leave heaven, to become one of the created, not only to become one of the created, but to die a criminal's death on our behalf. And we sometimes still doubt God's goodness. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power and He makes purification for the sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels in the name He has inherited is more excellent above all others. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Or again, It will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is Forever and ever, your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And the Lord laid the foundations of the earth at the beginning, and the heavens and the works of your hands, they will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe that you will roll up, like a garment that will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand and make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We serve Christ. A picture of God that even David didn't fathom. A God that came down and gave Himself for us, and now is seated again, enthroned at the right hand of His Father, and willing and able to intercede on our behalf. That is goodness. That is the truest, purest sense of goodness that we could ever know. The goodness of Christ coming 
in giving himself for us, though we did not deserve it. I want to shift gears really quickly because we are hurting in this moment and we are going through a lot of things as a congregation and a lot of things as, as, as a group of churches that we fellowship with and we're going through a lot of things as individuals and as, as business people but everything that I've been talking about in terms of the challenges to God's goodness, the challenges that, that come to people that whisper in their ear and say, you're not good enough, whisper in their ear and say, you are not worthy to be forgiven or you're not worthy of redemption, or that whisper in their ear, God is not good, God doesn't care. You've been abandoned. Those don't just target Christians. Those types of thoughts and, and, and this assault on God's goodness is an assault on everybody. And for those outside of the church, for those who are not Christians... This assault works. It works in alarming amount of times and in an alarming amount of contexts. And it's a means by which Satan uses to keep people in bondage. So in our context, in the United States... You know, Pew Research has done a a bit of uh, surveys or a number of surveys over the years of the religious outlook of, of the United States. And so between the years of 2007 and 2019, the number of folks in the United States who self identify as being religiously unaffiliated grew from 16% to 26%. So this is just looking at at people who call themselves uh, atheist, agnostic, or or nothing in particular. This last group, nothing in particular, you often hear them called the the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And that's by far the largest group. They're just the people who, from a religious standpoint, just say, eh, I don't really know. But they haven't gone so far as to formally identify themselves as an, as an atheist or an agnostic. They just, nothing in particular. So we've got a full quarter of our neighbors who have no real connection to any religion. But having grown up in a United States context where religion has played a big part, Christianity has played a big part over the centuries, they might not identify 
but they might very well be inoculated. They might very well have had some bad experiences with some well-meaning Christians who were heavy-handed or some uh, people who were preaching a, a prosperity gospel that was too thin to give them any grounding. So they might be inoculated even though they don't have any faith of their own at the moment. So the nuns, according to Pew, are the fastest growing religious group in the United States at the moment. Um, And when we break that down, as Pew does, break it down by generation, we can see that this group has been growing to the point that millennials, those born from 1981 to 1986, are now at 40% religiously unaffiliated. Um, I am a 1984 baby. I am a millennial. We have millennials in this room. And there are millennials in this room and probably on Zoom. I don't know who's on Zoom. I keep forgetting to talk to you people, I'm sorry. Um, not you people. Uh, 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 we, we are one, as Jerry, oh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really mess myself up here. Um, so anyway, we have millennials. We're in our 30s. We're having kids. And 40% of us are raising our kids with no uh, no religious, with nothing in particular in terms of a, a religious identification. So for us, we have to recognize that our view of God's goodness and our ability to reflect God's goodness into the world is going to be absolutely critical and it always has been really but it's going to be absolutely critical in bringing the gospel to people who don't have any type of a touchstone for what Christianity is They don't have any type of a a marker or touchstone as to the Bible. They've heard the name Jesus, I'm sure, but he's some dead guy. Uh, So our ability to be absolutely convinced of God's goodness and God's love from an internal place And being able to take that and reflect it out into the world is absolutely critical. You know, Paul tells us in Romans, despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and sufferings and not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God is good and he is a God that brings rain on the just and on the unjust. On those within the church who have been redeemed and on those who are on the outside. 
God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance and it's meant to lead the world to repentance. And if we have the opportunity to reflect that goodness out into the world, that is going to be absolutely critical for reaching people that are not going to be able to start at the same level that we are maybe used to. You know, folks can't just jump into understanding as much as we would want them to. And that's increasingly going to be the case. We must be assured fully, deeply, and passionately of God's goodness so that we can reflect it to a context that is inoculated against Christianity. Bottom line, our effectiveness for the kingdom will never and can never outrun our internalization and our confidence in God's love and God's goodness. They will always be tied. If we are not fully convinced of God's love and God's goodness, how can we expect to bring anyone? And we can't. The final thought here. I've said that, you know, worship is the big key to this, to reflecting God's goodness or to having confidence in God's goodness. It certainly was for David, and it can be for us if we will allow ourselves to truly worship and if we will allow ourselves to engage the creator of the universe with our songs and with our with our prayers and with our minds I just want to read this because these words from David are powerful and again it's a glimpse at his view of God's goodness. And and I'm going to read this, and then once we read this, we're going to have a song of invitation. Um, Listen, we're, we're meant to bear each other's burdens, and there are a lot of burdens to bear. Just know that we are here for you, and if you are having any kind of trouble or any kind of doubt what you're going through may be very hard and it might be pushing to you to the point where you are asking God, why are you doing this to me? And if you are at that point, know that it's a a point of, of being vulnerable, one. And know that we absolutely need to know that need and we absolutely need for you to be honest about where you are. So I'm going to read this, this psalm, Psalm 34, and, and at the conclusion of that, we'll, we'll just have our, our, uh, our invitation song. So, so please come 
And if you're on Zoom, please give Jerry or Ty or somebody a call and express to us your needs because we want to be there for you. So Psalm 34. Bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from his troubles. The angels of the Lord encamped about those who fear him and deliver them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack The young lions suffer, want, and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, and listen to me, for I will teach you to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and who loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit and turn away from evil and do good. And seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from all of them. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. And none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. 